Poems of Gerard Manley Hopkins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Maggs. Author's Preface. The poems in this book are written, some in running rhythm, the common rhythm in English use, some in sprung rhythm, and some in a mixture of the two. And those in the common rhythm are some counterpointed, some not. Common English rhythm, called running rhythm above, is measured by feet of either two or three syllables, and, putting aside the imperfect feet at the beginning and end of lines, and also some unusual measures in which feet seem to be paired together and double or composite feet to arise, never more or less. Every foot has one principal stress or accent, and this, or the syllable it falls on, may be called the stress of the foot, and the other part, the one or two unaccented syllables, the slack. Feet, and the rhythms made out of them, in which the stress comes first, are called falling feet and falling rhythms. Feet and rhythm, in which the slack comes first, are called rising feet and rhythms. And if the stress is between two slacks, there will be rocking feet and rhythms. These distinctions are real and true to nature, but for purposes of scanning, it is a great convenience to follow the example of music and take the stress always first, as the accent, or the chief accent, always comes first in a musical bar. If this is done, there will be, in common English verse, only two possible feet, the so-called accentual trochee and dactyl, and correspondingly only two possible uniform rhythms, the so-called trochaic and dactylic. But they may be mixed, and then what the Greeks call a logoedic rhythm arises. These are the facts, and according to these, the scanning of ordinary, regularly written English verse is very simple indeed, and to bring in other principles is here unnecessary. But because verse written strictly in these feet and by these principles will become same and tame, the poets have brought in licenses and departures from rule to give variety, and especially when the natural rhythm is rising, as in the common ten-syllable, or five-foot verse, rhymed or blank. These irregularities are chiefly reversed feet and reversed or counterpoint rhythm, which two things are two steps or degrees of license in the same kind. By a reversed foot, I mean the putting the stress where, to judge by the rest of the measure, the slack should be, and the slack where the stress. And this is done freely at the beginning of a line, and in the course of a line, after a pause, only scarcely ever in the second foot or place, and never in the last, unless when the poet designs some extraordinary effect, for these places are characteristic and sensitive, and cannot well be touched. But the reversal of the first foot, and of some middle foot after a strong pause, is a thing so natural that our poets have generally done it, from Chaucer down without remark, and it commonly passes unnoticed and cannot be said to amount to a formal change of rhythm, but rather 
is that irregularity which all natural growth and motion shows. If, however, the reversal is repeated in two feet running, especially so as to include the sensitive second foot, it must be due either to great want of ear, or else is a calculated effect, the superinducing, or mounting, of a new rhythm upon the old. And since the new or mounted rhythm is actually heard, and at the same time the mind naturally supplies the natural or standard foregoing rhythm, for we do not forget what the rhythm is that by rights we should be hearing, two rhythms are in some manner running at once, and we have something answerable to counterpoint in music, which is two or more strains of tune going on together, and this is counterpoint rhythm. Of this kind of verse Milton is the great master, and the choruses of Samson Agonistes are written throughout in it, but with the disadvantage that he does not let the reader clearly know what the grand rhythm is meant to be, and so they have struck most readers as merely irregular. And if in fact you counterpoint throughout, since one only of the counter-rhythms is actually heard, the other is really destroyed or cannot come to exist, and what is written is one rhythm only, and probably sprung rhythm, of which I now speak. Sprung rhythm, as used in this book, is measured by feet of from one to four syllables regularly, and for particular effects any number of weak or slack syllables may be used. It has one stress, which falls on the only syllable, if there is only one, or, if there are more, then scanning as above, on the first, and so gives rise to four sorts of feet, a monosyllable, and the so-called accentual trochee, dactyl, and the first paean. And there will be four corresponding natural rhythms, but nominally the feet are mixed and any one may follow any other. And hence, sprung rhythm differs from running rhythm in having or being only one nominal rhythm, a mixed or logoedic one, instead of three, but on the other hand in having twice the flexibility of foot, so that any two stresses may either follow one another running, or be divided by one, two, or three slack syllables. But strict sprung rhythm cannot be counterpointed. In sprung rhythm, as in logoedic rhythm generally, the feet are assumed to be equally long or strong, and their seeming inequality is made up by pause or stressing. Remark also that it is natural in sprung rhythm for the lines to be rove over, that is, for the scanning of each line immediately to take up that of the one before, so that if the first has one or more syllables at its end, the other must have so many the less at its beginning, and in fact the scanning runs on without break from the beginning, say, of a stanza to the end, and all the stanza is one long strain, though written in lines asunder. Two licenses are natural to sprung rhythm. The one is rests, as in music, but of this an example is scarcely to be found in this book unless in the Echo's second line. The other is hangers or outrides, 
that is, one, two, or three slack syllables added to a foot and not counting in the nominal scanning. They are so called because they seem to hang below the line or ride forward or backward from it in another dimension than the line itself, according to a principle needless to explain here. These outriding half-feet or hangers are marked by a loop underneath them, and plenty of them will be found. The other marks are easily understood, namely accents, where the reader might be in doubt which syllable should have the stress, slurs, that is, loops over syllables to tie them together into the time of one, little loops at the end of a line to show that the rhyme goes on to the first letter of the next line, what in music are called pauses, symbol, to show that the syllable should be dwelt on, and twirls, symbol, to mark reversed or counterpointed rhythm. Note on the nature and history of sprung rhythm. Sprung rhythm is the most natural of things, for 1. It is the rhythm of common speech and of written prose, when rhythm is perceived in them. 2. It is the rhythm of all but the most monotonously regular music, so that in the words of choruses and refrains and in songs written closely to music, it arises. 3. It is found in nursery rhymes, weather saws and so on, because, however these may once have been made in running rhythm, the terminations having dropped off by the change of language, the stresses come together, and so the rhythm is sprung. 4. It arises in common verse when reversed or counterpointed, for the same reason. But nevertheless, in spite of all this, and though Greek and Latin lyric verse which is well known, and the old English verse seen in Pierce Plowman are in sprung rhythm, it has in fact ceased to be used since the Elizabethan age, Green being the last writer who can be said to have recognised it. For perhaps there was not, down to our days, a single, even short poem in English in which sprung rhythm is employed, not for single effects or in fixed places, but as the governing principle of the scansion. I say this because the contrary has been asserted. If it is otherwise, the poem should be cited. Some of the sonnets in this book are in five-foot, some in six-foot or Alexandrine lines. Numbers 13 and 22 are kirtle sonnets, that is, they are constructed in proportions resembling those of the sonnet proper, namely 6 plus 4, instead of 8 plus 6, with, however, a half-line tailpiece, so that the equation is rather 12 over 8 plus 9 over 2, equals 21 over 2, equals 10 and a half. End of Author's Preface